Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This event is part of the student speaker series sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. This afternoon, we will speak, we will be speaking with Nathaniel Bader. Nathaniel Bader is an IWP student pursuing a master's degree in statecraft and national security affairs with a concentration in public diplomacy and strategic influence. Nathaniel graduated summa cum laude from Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell, South Dakota with degrees in history and nonprofit administration. While at Dakota Wesleyan, Nathaniel was named the Senator George McGovern Scholar, served as parliamentarian for the Student Senate, led the McGovern Engagement Group for Political Activism, and spent time in Uganda working on long-term economic development projects in two rural villages. Nathaniel has interned with court-appointed special advocates and the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. Nathaniel currently works at the American Political Science Association. Thank you for being with us today, Nathaniel. The floor is yours. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, and thank you first to Hannah, Lindsay, Katie, and the rest of the events team at IWP for helping set this up and creating the way to do this all virtually. It's uh, definitely a blessing to be able to have the technology to do this and the staff that are willing to work with me on making this happen. And another special thank you to Jeffrey Soroka and the rest of the Active Measures staff. It's a student-run journal at IWP for helping put this on uh, for me as well. So this lecture initially came out of a paper that I was writing uh, for my international relations class at IWP. And so this really came out of that, of talking about baseball diplomacy and Cuba. And with about 45 minutes ago, the Major League Baseball owners deciding to go forward with the plan to restart the baseball season, what better time to be talking about baseball and diplomacy than right now when the world could really use some of that as soon as it's safe to do so. Uh, baseball really is a common language between the United States and Cuba. The game is in, as important to the American culture as it is to the Cuban culture. And the crack of bat has long been heard in New York City, as well as in Havana. Uh, the National League, the first um, true professional league in the United States, was established in 1876. And the first Cuban professional league was established in 1878, only two years later. And for the next approximately 80 years, American ballplayers and Cuban ballplayers really were interacting on a very high level. Cuban players often signed with American professional teams and were free to play in the United States. And American players likewise would travel to Cuba and play in the Cuban Winter Leagues. Uh, in 1959, after the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro banned professional baseball in favor of an amateur system that was played simply for the love of the game. And despite being labeled as baseball traders by the Castro regime, dozens of Cuban baseball players have defected from the island since 1960 for the chance to compete in America. Players often rely on human traffickers and legal loopholes in order to make their way from Cuba to the United States 
and eventually to the dream of the major leagues. Uh, during a period of detente between Cuba and the United States uh, that started in 2014 under the Obama administration, uh, there, there was a, uh, an agreement that was negotiated between the Cuban Baseball Federation, uh, I will abbreviate the FCB, according to the Spanish naming there, uh, and Major League Baseball to allow for Cuban ballplayers to travel to America and play baseball in the major leagues without having to defect from Cuba. And after two years of negotiations, a deal was finally reached in December 2018 between the MLB and the FCB. Before the deal could take effect, however, the Trump administration had nixed the agreement, which left Cuban baseball players and Major League, major league Baseball as pawns in the middle of a 60-year struggle that has been ongoing between the United States and Cuba. Uh, so today, I'll really be talking about past U.S. government policy, how baseball has been used as a diplomatic tool between the United States and Cuba, how and why players defect from Cuba to the United States to play baseball, and the deal itself and how the cancellation of it impacted, impacts prospects for normalized relations between the U.S. and Cuba. The free flow of Cuban baseball players that occurred between the 80 years, approximately between 1880 and 1960, uh, effectively ended in 1961 with the establishment of the Cuban embargo under President Kennedy. Under the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, Congress authorized the president to establish and maintain a total embargo upon all trade between the United States and Cuba. The impact of the embargo was felt quite immediately as Cuban ballplayers could no longer come to the United States or be signed directly out of Cuba. After the Cuban government refused to allow uh, him to return to the United States from his native Cuba, Rogelio Alvarez defected from Cuba in 1963 to continue playing with the Washington Senators. Alvarez's defection was the first baseball-related defection to take place under the embargo and uh, worsening relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Only one other defection would actually occur over the next 28 years. Uh, Barbara Garby, uh, who's already a successful player on the Cuban national team, defected in 1980, along with about 125 other 125,000 other Cubans under the Mariel Boat Lift of 1980. Following the establishment of the embargo, American government regulation and different legislation really expanded the reach of the sanctions that were placed upon Cuba by the United States. The Cuban Assets and Control Regulations Act, or CACR, was passed by Congress in 1963, and that broadened the sanctions to include Treasury Department regulation of all commercial activity with Cuba. The goal of CACR was to isolate the Cuban government financially uh, and deprive it of all U.S. dollars. For MLB and its individual teams, CACR meant the agents and scouts could not conduct business in Cuba, which really eliminated the possibility of Cuban ballplayers being identified and signed by teams while they were still on the island. Uh, congressional legislation in the 1990s was aimed at further isolating the Cuban government. The 1992 passing of the Cuban Democracy Act, or CDA, further limited the ability of businesses and their subsidiaries to perform business activities in Cuba. In 1996, U.S.-Cuban relations were further damaged when two Cuban MiGs downed two planes belonging to an American charity's Brothers to the Rescue. In response, Congress passed the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act, uh, which is commonly known as the Helms-Burton Act. In addition to placing further restrictions on trade with Cuba, the Helms-Burton Act uh, markedly limited the power of the U.S. president to unilaterally ease trade restrictions. The downing of these planes and the subsequent passing of the Helms-Burton Act 
signified a low point in U.S.-Cuban relations in the 1990s. Uh, a few years after this, in 1996, the Clinton administration began a process of normalizing relations through an initial period of detente. As part of the normalization of relations, the State Department authorized the first games in Cuba featuring American teams since 1959. The Baltimore Orioles traveled to Havana in March of 1999 to play a series of exhibition games against the Cuban national team. However, the policies toward Cuba really overshadowed the playing of the games themselves. Baltimore Orioles owner, Peter Angelos, had requested a license from the U.S. Treasury uh, two years prior to the games to allow his team to go play in Cuba. Uh, the Clinton administration at the time in 1997 uh, did not allow that, but finally allowed the games to go forward two years later in 1999, when the timing of them uh, supported Clinton's late 1990s thawing of relations between the U.S. and Cuba. The decision of the Clinton administration to hold games in Cuba really provoked a wide array of responses from politicians and the baseball community, with some claiming that the games provided legitimacy for the Castro government, which after the fall of the Soviet Union, he so desperately wanted, uh, while others claimed that a thawing of relations between two countries separated by only 90 miles was praiseworthy and admirable. The greatest concern of the games, however, was the question of money. Since the 1960s, American law uh, had prohibited the transfer of funds to the Cuban government under the regulations I already talked about. As a workaround, all profits from the games were mandated to go to charities that operated within Cuba, but were not controlled by the Cuban government. The Cuban national team then traveled to Baltimore in May of 1999 for another series of games under those same requirements. The media attention focused on the games highlighted the unique place that sports and particularly baseball, really have in capturing and forming public opinion in America. So while Cuban-American exchanges in other professions, such as orchestra or teaching, had received some notice in the American press, the exchange of baseball teams received wide press coverage. The focus of this coverage was both regarding the respective quality of the teams that were playing, as well as the potential impact that this type of exchange could have on foreign relations in general. While the games were over, many expected that this type of exchange would continue. And despite these hopes, uh, the Orioles exchange of 1999 was the only such exchange that occurred at the time. Re Republican lawmakers decried the whole series of games as being too friendly to Castro. Orioles Vice President Sid Thrift lamented to the press at the time that the trip was supposed to be non-political, it was supposed to be just about baseball. What Thrift failed to realize, though, was that every action between the United States and Cuba has to involve a political angle. The failure to capitalize on the popular attention played to the games ultimately thwarted President Clinton's attempts to improve relations with Cuba during his time in office. The 1999 Baltimore Orioles trip to Havana and the subsequent uh, trip of the Cuban national team to Baltimore was, however, not the first time that the U.S. government had used baseball as a diplomatic tool with Cuba. In the 1970s, then MLB Commissioner Bowie Kuhn twice attempted to facilitate the playing of exhibition games in Cuba. In 1976, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger authorized games to be played in Havana, but Cuban involvement in the Angolan Civil War and Cuban supporting one side and the Americans supporting the other side in that war led Kissinger ultimately to cancel the games. In early 1977, Kuhn publicly reached out to the Cuban government with the proposition for an American all-star team traveling to Cuba to play a Cuban all-star team. 
The games never occurred, however, because of a disagreement between the Cuban Institute of Sports and Commissioner Kuhn about what team would be sent. Fidel Castro didn't want to see an MLB All-Star team. He wanted to see the New York Yankees. So because of his fascination with the Yankees, the games never occurred. Uh, the 1977 debacle uh, really left Commissioner Kuhn publicly humiliated and embittered towards Cuba after the proposal for the games fell through in March. One month later, in April 1977, Kuhn sent a letter that came to be known as the Kuhn Directive to all 26 MLB teams that were active at the time. Their directive, which was MLB's first permanent policy toward Cuba, prohibited any major league club from negotiating with or recruiting a Cuban ballplayer. Although U.S. law already restricted the conduct of business in Cuba, including signing contracts with Cuban players, the Kuhn Directive added further restrictions at the corporate level. Uh, after Cuban pitcher Rene Orocha's 1991 defection was facilitated by several sports agents, both in Cuba and in the United States, MLB amended the Kuhn Directive to forbid all major league teams from discussing and negotiating with anyone in Cuba about signing a Cuban baseball player. Uh, the intersection of MLB guidelines with the Cuban embargo means that any player seeking to play baseball at the professional level must defect. Uh, since Orocha's defection in 1991, dozens more players have defected from the island with the goal of playing professional baseball in the United States. Certain athletes have defected due to the poor standard of living in Cuba that followed the loss of Soviet financial support in the early 1990s. Still others defected because the government denied them what they deemed were basic um, fundamental rights and freedoms. The most common reason for defection, however, is money. Uh, in 1961, Castro dissolved Cuba's professional baseball leagues in favor of a government-run amateur system with wages that were comparable to that of the common laborer. Uh, since 1961, those wages have barely risen. Um, Cuban ballplayers made around $17 per American dollars per month in 2013. And recognizing the problem of defection due to money and the rising number of players that were defecting for that reason, the Cuban Baseball Federation more than doubled the $17 a month wages to $40 during the 2014 season. Bonuses were awarded for the first time in 2013, with baseball players who appeared in 70% of Cuban League games being awarded $208. League leaders in hitting and other categories got an extra $41, and the team that wins the title that year gets 2,700 American dollars to split among all the players and coaches. In addition, to, uh, the Cuban Baseball Federation began allowing its players to compete in foreign leagues, such as those in Japan, Korea, or Mexico. For, for Cuban baseball players playing overseas, anywhere from as low as 10% to as high as 75% of that player's salary is paid directly to the sports arm of the Cuban government, rather than to the player themselves. Although making some money in Cuba, the opportunity to earn more money playing abroad in leagues such as those in Korea or Mexico or the United States still draw players away from the island. From 2009 until 2017, Cuban defectors playing in the MLB signed more than $330 million worth of contracts with MLB teams. Star players such as Yasiel Puig or Jose Abreu who both defected from the island in the uh, early 2010s, signed deals worth $42 million and $68 million, respectively. And prior to his defection, Yulieski Goriel, 
who's a third baseman on the Cuban national team and is arguably the best player on the island, uh, earned approximately 13,000 Cuban pesos per month, uh, which is about 491 US dollars per month. Uh, Guriel's yearly salary in Cuba was six ten thousandths of the yearly salary that he received once he signed his five-year $47.5 million contract with the Houston Astros in 2016. Defection from Cuba, however, although monetarily possibly prudent, is potentially deadly and incredibly risky. Up to 75% of those who attempted to escape by boat in 1994 died at sea. Some players, such as Rene Rocha in 1991 or Aroldis Chapman in 2009, defected in relatively safe circumstances while they were playing for the Cuban national team in tournaments occurring abroad. Uh, the more common manner of defection, though, is to leave the island and establish residency in another country before eventually signing with an MLB club. Uh, together, MLB rules and U.S. law, though, create differing eligibility and draft requirements for, for players who establish residency in the United States, as opposed to those who establish residency in another country. Under the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1966, Cuban natives or citizens living in the United States who meet certain eligibility requirements to apply become lawful citizens, uh, the equivalent of getting a green card. In 1995, the United States began interpreting the Cuban Adjustment Act to mean that any immigrant from Cuba who landed on dry land would be permitted to pursue residency in the United States, while those intercepted at sea would be returned to Cuba as part of President Clinton's wet foot, dry foot policy. Although many Cubans who defect seek permanent residency in the United States under the Cuban Adjustment Act, baseball players often do not defect to the United States due to MLB signing procedures for residents of the United States. Cuban, Cuban players who establish residency in the United States are treated the same as all natural born or naturalized American or Canadian, Canadian citizens. Thus, Cuban immigrants who establish residency in the US are actually subject to Major League Baseball's amateur draft and restrictions on monetary amounts for rookie contracts under MLB rules three and four. Players who choose to establish residency in a third country, however, avoid these contractual restrictions and are free to sign with the team of their choosing rather than proceeding through the draft. This model is known as the El Duce model after Cuban defector Orlando El Duce Hernandez, who declined asylum in the United States in favor of accepting asylum in Costa Rica. By accepting asylum in Costa Rica, Hernandez was able to sign with the team of his choosing for many millions of dollars more than he could have signed for if he was a resident of the United States and proceeded through the amateur draft. The monetary incentives for to follow the El Duce model may encourage players to seek out lancheros or smugglers to help them ferry them off the island. Jose Abreu uh, had signed, paid $6 million to the smugglers who helped him escape Cuba in 2013. Yasiel Puig's 2012 defection was documented in the ESPN investigative report, No One Walks Off the Island. Uh, Puig's journey from Cuba to the major leagues involved being smuggled to Mexico by the drug cartel Los Zetas for more than $250,000 uh, in an upfront payment. Uh, he was then kidnapped once he got to Mexico by a rival cartel. And when, after he signed his first contract in the major leagues, uh, he funneled $8.4 million to the smugglers that got him off the island, as well as the cartels in Mexico. ESPN's Scott Eden described the trafficking of baseball players by writing, 
The smugglers want between 20% and 30% of the top line value of a player's first professional contract. That kind of revenue stream has interested a whole lot of colorful people in the underworlds of several countries, Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and of course, Miami, USA. In Cancun, long the seat of smuggling rings that specialize in bringing regular civilians out of Cuba, as well as ballplayers, turf wars have been waged over the business. Players have been stolen at gunpoint from one group by the next, hits have been taken out, rivals driven by and strafed, as well as bullet-ridden corpses left lying in the streets. Any attempts at diplomatic solutions must start with stemming the flow of players via human trafficking and allowing for safer means of coming to the United States to play baseball. The 2018 MLB FCB agreement sought to do just that. In 2014, President Obama initiated a period of detente with Cuba. The easing of relations was most significantly highlighted by the 2016 visit of Obama to Cuba, where he and then Cuban leader Raul Castro enjoyed a baseball together at Havana's Latin Americano Stadium. The greatest impact of the Obama thaw on baseball was the administration's granting of to MLB of a license from the Treasury Department's Office, Office of Foreign Assets Control that allowed MLB to negotiate a deal with the Cuban Baseball Federation that would permit players signing with MLB teams to be able to do so without defecting first from Cuba. In December 2018, the MLB and the FCB came to an agreement that would allow players over the age of 25 to sign freely with major league teams. As a part of the deal, players would come to the United States on work visas, and teams would pay the Cuban Baseball Federation for the release of their rights. The payment to the FCB would be between approximately 10% and 25%, depending on the age of the player and other factors, uh, such as their productivity, while they were still on the, in Cuba. Uh, MLB has long had similar deals in place with Japan, Korea, and Taiwan that offer a posting system for players. The agreement uh, signed in 2018 would have allowed Cuba to preserve its homegrown talent and maintain its own independent league structure while still funneling certain players to the major leagues in the United States. The Cuban Institute for Sport supported the deal and praised its positive impacts on human trafficking by saying in a statement that the contract will contribute to stopping illegal activities like human trafficking that for years have put the physical integrity and life of many talented young Cuban ballplayers at risk. The Cuban Institute for Sport further stated that the agreement would continue the collaborative, non-political, and stable relationship between the Cuban Baseball Federation and the MLB that would guarantee the ability of Cuban baseball players to be able to play in the American professional leagues without losing their residency in Cuba or their link to Cuban baseball. When the deal was announced, uh, sports writer Matt Provenzano called the deal an unambiguously good thing for baseball, for the United States, for Cuba, and the world. The MLB-FCB deal, however, was not without its detractors. The, a Trump administration official who works in the Treasury Department said the deal would institutionalize a system by which a Cuban body garnishes the wages of a hardworking athlete who would simply seek to live and compete in a free society. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, a long-term supporter of a hardline stance with Cuba, called the deal, uh, in unambiguous terms, a farce. Current players, however, such as Jose Abreu and Yasiel Puig, who both had to defect from Cuba, Puig in very risky circumstances, praised the deal, however, with Abreu saying that players will be able to keep their earnings as any other player in the world, and they'll be able to return to Cuba, and they'll be able to share with their families 
that experience and they will be able to play the sport they love against the best players in the world without fear or trepidation. Puig's acknowledgement of the state safe pathway the deal created was clear when he stated, to know that future Cuban ballplayers will not have to go through what we went through makes me so happy. Major League Baseball also unambiguously supported this deal and spent more than $2 million in 2017 and 2018 lobbying Congress in support of the deal. Uh, in sharp contrast, though, to the Obama administration's policy of detente with Cuba, the Trump administration rolled back certain Obama-era efforts to normalize relations and introduce new, new sanctions against Cuba. In 2019, the Trump administration increased economic sanctions significantly in order to pressure the Cuban government. With these sanctions, U.S. policy toward Cuba again shifted to a policy of strong economic pressure. In line with the Trump administration's policy of pressure on Cuba, the Department of the Treasury reversed course and nullified the MLB-FCB deal. The Obama administration had maintained that the Cuban Baseball Federation was not a government entity, uh, and that then allowed the transfer of money between the MLB and the FCB. Uh, the Trump administration, however, claimed the opposite and revoked the deal because they stated that the Cuban Baseball Federation was a part of the Cuban government and therefore no payments could be made to the Federation under current US law. This claim though is contrary to the Cuban government's statement that the FCB is not a government entity and is instead a subsidiary of the Cuban Olympic Committee, which is a non-governmental entity and is privately controlled. As long as no safe pathway to the United States exists, however, Cuban baseball players will continue to defect from the island, no matter if the Cuban Baseball Federation is or is not an entity that is controlled by the Cuban government. This process of defection harms the United States on two specific fronts. First, the inability of defectors to return to Cuba after being exposed to a capitalist multi-party system in the United States limits the prospects for democ popular democratization and reform on the island of Cuba. And second, when players defect, they often rely on and pay large portions of their contract to human traffickers for the chance to play professional baseball in the United States. With no agreement that would allow for Cuban baseball players to play baseball freely in the United States, human traffickers will continue to be utilized and paid for the services that they provide. Any agreement would include payments to the Cuban government, but would also significantly reduce the amount of money paid to traffickers by baseball players, cutting off a significant revenue stream. The United States must decide which option, uh, either allowing criminal smugglers to get paid or the Cuban government, is better aligned with its national interest and values, because no matter what, one of the two entities will get paid. Uh, the cancellation by the Trump administration of the MLB-FCB deal, um, along with the repealing of other various Obama-era policies, has placed the United States in a back in a pre-detente relationship with Cuba and has greatly minimized the prospects and possibilities for normalized relations between the United States and Cuba. Uh, and in order to move beyond this zero-sum Cold War-style diplomatic relationship with Cuba, baseball diplomacy must be a key aspect of negotiations between the two countries. To begin this process, the United States must develop a clear and cohesive strategy 
as opposed to the antithetical political policies of dip diplomatic thaw that characterized the Clinton and Obama administrations, mixed with then increased pressure that is back with the Trump administration. Um, as evidenced by the slew of leg legislation that has regarded Cuba since the late 1950s, and especially in the early 1960s, Congress has greatly restricted the ability of the president to conduct American policy toward Cuba in any substantive manner. This has included restricting the power of the executive to unilaterally ease trade restrictions. And since 2000, however, Congress has ceded some of that foreign policy uh, work back to the president and to the executive branch as a whole. Congress, though, has either ceded too much power to the executive or not enough. The president has some power to act alone, but not enough power to change the situation without Congress becoming involved. Uh, this devolution of powers has allowed for inconsistent policies uh, that are executive branch directed um, and have dictated or have kind of been a uh, have dictated U.S. Pol Cuban policy relations over the past 30 years, but has not allowed enough for a president to fully relax trade restrictions without uh, Congress becoming involved and reinitiating further restrictions. And so in order to move forward, Congress must take a more active role in guiding foreign policy toward Cuba, specifically relaxing certain trade restrictions that will permit the president to conduct foreign policy toward Cuba. Congress has the ability to then act in a carrot and stick fashion, which would mean offering an olive branch to Cuba, but then retaining the ability to revoke it if necessary. The first step in this increased role of Congress should be to pass legislation that would permit the MLB FCB deal to go through as it was agreed upon in late 2018. This congressional action would still allow the primary author of foreign policy, the president, to maintain political and economic pressure or allow for detente with Cuba if so desired. Um, this would also mandate that an olive branch would exist between the two nations that cannot be taken away by the president, but would be under the purview of the MLB and the FCB. Uh, with baseball then reestablished as the common language of U.S.-Cuban diplomacy, do you, the two countries would finally be, be able to play ball at the negotiating table. Uh, thank you. I believe we have about a half an hour for questions at this point. So. Thank you all for listening to that, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you, Nathaniel. We do have some questions in um, from one attendee. How effective do you think baseball diplomacy slash sports diplomacy would be with other countries? I think it has been fairly effective. When you look at baseball, it has oftentimes been used to reach out to countries that um, and establish better relations. This has often occurred in East Asia where MLB exhibition games have been played for decades. In post-World War II Japan, uh, MLB All-Star teams often went through for about, from about 1946 to about 1957 mm -hmm. and uh, took various trips. And these included star players such as Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle uh, rather than sending just any team. And those games have occurred. Uh, a few years ago, Ichiro Suzuki played his last professional games for the Seattle Mariners while playing in his home in Tokyo and playing in front of his own country. And that really has helped uh, in post-World War II help reestablish relations with Japan. Uh, 
One of the hard things in American sports diplomacy is the lack of a soccer culture in the United States. But so oftentimes with Europe or some African nations, it has not been as effective because the most popular sport in another country does not line up here. Going away from baseball though, uh, basketball has been also a very growing sport across the world. Uh, specifically in places such as China, the Philippines, and now in Africa. Uh, the NBA's Africa program has been growing and has really helped improve relations in certain areas of Africa with the United States as well. I think it can be a very effective tool because sports do matter. Uh, to No matter who you are, everyone across the world has this competitive spirit and wants to uh, partake in all of that and can really increase a common language. Uh, through competitive sports and athletics that could not occur otherwise. Do you think it's likely that Congress will pass the FCB MLB? Truthfully, I do not think it is likely, uh, especially in the current political climate. I do not see it as being uh, a tool that can be used diplomatically if Congress would get involved. Uh, there. Views on Cuba are often seen as being partisan, uh, with Democrats typically favoring relaxing um, tensions with Cuba and entering periods of detente, uh, with Republicans then stepping in, uh, either in Congress or in the executive branch, to place harder trade restrictions on there and seek government reforms on the island before relaxing restrictions. Uh, so I don't see that happening um, at any time in the near future. Okay. Um, we have another question here from Jack Waterman. What type of cultural impact do you think the return of the game, albeit without fans and only 82 games, will have on the American public in response to COVID-19, say, compared to the three-year hiatus of the Second World War? Well, as someone who wasn't around for the Second World War, uh, I may not be able to fully appreciate the cultural impacts of that. I do think America right now, though, is yearning for sports, um, and that, that's not just America, that's the rest of the world. The BBC ran an article about a month ago that was titled, Sports Don't Matter, But They Do. And I think a lot of us kind of share that sentiment. I, as a major sports fan, have definitely missed sports over this, and I think American culture really does want that uh, to return. The Ability to do so safely, though, is the primary concern that I have with that. Uh, sports do matter, but I'm getting by with MLB running old games from the 90s right now. I would love to see live games again, um, but I think the ability to do so safely would be the greatest impact on American culture in a similar fashion to World War II or even baseball in a post-9-11 era. You have another question here. What are other diplomatic options with Cuba? I think other diplomatic options with Cuba are much the same as we have with any adversary. Uh, you can see different things going between increasing trade restrictions on Cuba even further than they are now, or relaxing them, uh, even involving different things around just more exchanges uh, in a public diplomacy sphere rather than having uh, more things occurring uh, from a government standpoint, but really increasing a cross-cultural 
uh, standpoint of people-to-people contact and more popular opinions with that, rather than simply relying on a government-to-government contact, which is then much more subject to a partisan divide and through differing uh, availabilities and under U.S. legislation that can be very difficult to work through. Uh, there, I think one option is definitely opening up uh, more economic standpoints from that uh, and working closer with Cuba in certain areas. Um, there is the concern, however, of uh, working then too closely with a country that has, for the past 60 years, been deemed as an adversary. Um, and working through and wondering which comes first, economic uh, lifting of economic sanctions to promote a change in governance practices, or do we seek a change in governance practices before we seek those changes in economic standpoints between the two countries? We have another question here from uh, Michael Orlansky. He says, thank you for your well-researched presentation. Are Cuban MLB players, current or former, actively involved in efforts to increase U.S.-Cuba baseball diplomacy? Uh, To certain extents, it really depends on the player and the tie that they want to maintain to Cuba. Many of these players uh, have defected and they have left family, friends, and entire livelihood behind. so one of the so many Cubans have sought to go back after defecting in order and after their playing careers in order to basically resume their lives in a sense in a post baseball world for themselves and repick up relationships. Uh, some players have become deeply involved in MLB as well and have helped lobby Major League Baseball as a corporation to work closer with the Cuban government or work with the American government to permit uh, other exchanges with that. Um, It really depends, though, on the player themselves. Uh, The profile, though, of many players simply is large enough to make an impact on that. Uh, When players, although they may not be playing for their national team anymore due to defections, um, still have a following in Cuba, just the same as MLB does. Uh, so players that are current stars, such as Yasiel Puig, um, Aroldis Chapman, Jose Abreu, and others, uh, just by their profile and their stance um, being so well-paid and so well-known, have really been able to impact some of that, especially through their different storytelling. So it may not be as much that Cuban baseball players are actively doing that, but their stories are being told, uh, such as the ESPN investigative report that I mentioned telling a story of Yasiel Puig and drawing attention to that and to the nature of human trafficking uh, has really kind of impacted more of that and drawn more American public attention to it from the average sports fan that may not know where a certain player came from. Could sports diplomacy assist with other relation areas such as scientific endeavors and or could such endeavors cross-pollinate? I really think they could. Uh, one thing that was done in the uh, throughout the 1990s was different exchanges uh, that followed a pattern of what the United States did in order to relax tensions with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Exchanges of teachers and other educational um, areas and the areas of knowledge in that. Uh, science and scientists were often exchanged to do work with another. Um, 
orchestras, dance groups, and other things have really been utilized in very wide arrays with other countries as well as with Cuba. The one thing that sports diplomacy has that other areas do not necessarily have is a wide public following. Um, there isn't a, a news network such as ESPN that follows teachers around and is showing the big news with that, whereas it would be a lead story on Sports Center uh, whenever an exchange would occur with sports diplomacy. So that's one of the problems with that, but opening the door in one spot can open the door to others. Uh, so they definitely have an ability to cross pollinate and have one domino kind of fall and allow for the next domino to then follow after. Great. Well, I think that's all the questions that we have. Um, so I'd like to thank Nathaniel Bader and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you.